Amen. If you have a Bible, go with me to Judges chapter 3 and verse 12. Judges chapter 3, verse 12 will be there in just a second. One of the things that we uh, as Americans love is an underdog story. And that's why movies like Rudy and Mighty Ducks, which is, has like a reboot on Disney Plus, and uh, just movies about underdogs and, and stories about underdogs sell, and people love those and people resonate with those. And my favorite series of movies about an underdog is a series called Rocky. I don't know if any of you have ever seen the Rocky series. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. All except for Rocky V are awesome and fantastic because Rocky is about this, this like uh, bum Southpaw who just, you know, is, is, it really has a, a difficult career and it doesn't go well for him until he gets a shot at the champ and he trains and he, he, he works hard and he makes himself better so that he can kind of fight to a draw with the champ. And then in the second movie, he beats the champ and then he goes on from there. Rocky is a, is a great story about this Southpaw who takes down Apollo Creed. And then in Rocky three, he takes down Mr. T who is called Clubber Lang. And then in Rocky four, he takes down the Russian Ivan Drago. And not, not too long after that movie was made, the Soviet Union fell. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence that Rocky took down the Russian and then the communist Soviet Union fell uh, in the late 80s, early 90s because uh, there was just a lot of momentum going that way. I don't think it's a coincidence. And in that movie, if you think about the end of that movie, Rocky talks about when he's, he's won over the Russian crowd and he says, look, I can change, you can change, everybody can change. And then the Soviet Union changed. And so, I don't, again, I don't think it's a coincidence. But there's a reason why those movies were a success. And it's not just because of Sylvester Stallone's amazing acting, you know. He, 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 wrote, the, he wrote the first one and won an Oscar for it, but... Uh, the reason why those movies are a success is because we love underdog stories and because we, we understand, we as Christians understand that something like that is true about the world. Something like that is true about life. The gospel story is how God uses an unlikely savior who, who uses unlikely methods to rescue his people. And that's what we see again and again in the Bible is that God uses unlikely heroes. And that's what we're going to see here in Judges chapter 3 is that God uses an unlikely Southpaw. He uses a left-handed guy to rescue his people. Now, as we get ready to read this story, I just want to tell you, as I said last week, this is every eight-year-old's like favorite story in the Bible, okay? Because there's action, there's there's violence, there's intrigue, there's bathroom humor, like all of it is covered in this story here in Judges chapter three. And I, I just have to imagine that 4,000 years ago, the Israelite children, when they were going to bed at night and their mom and dad were, were tucking them in and they said, okay, what story do you wanna to hear tonight? They always were clamoring, 
Tell the one about Ehud. Tell the one about Ehud and Eglon. I want to hear that story again. This is a, a story that, that children will love. It's really a comedy. This story is a comedy. It, it shows that God has a sense of humor in the way that he works and the way that he rescues his people. So we're going to see tonight in Judges chapter 3 is that God comically uses unlikely people and unlikely weapons to defeat his enemies. God comically uses unlikely people and unlikely weapons to defeat his enemies. So Judges chapter 3, verse 12. If you would, please stand to your feet out of reverence for reading the words of God. And as we reread this, again, I want you to understand it's a comedy. So feel free to laugh and to see the uh, humor in it. This is the word of God. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he, he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of his cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. And when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, 
all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So again, we want to see in this story tonight, God comically uses unlikely people and unlikely weapons to defeat his enemies. Now, just to remind you, we started last week in the book of Judges. There is a cycle that repeats itself over and over again in the book of Judges. You'll see this on the screen uh, behind me. The people of Israel sin against the Lord by committing idolatry. And so as a result, God judges them by, by using a foreign power or a foreign army to enslave them. And at that point, they cry out to God in repentance and God raises up a savior, a judge who delivers them and they follow the Lord as long as that judge is alive. And then when he dies, they repeat the cycle over and over again. And we see that again here in the story of Ehud. The people of Israel sin. The text tells us that they again do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And as we, saw, we talked about last week, one of the key phrases that we see throughout the book of Judges is that the people of Israel had no king, and so they did what was right in their own eyes. And that's a way to describe sin. Sin is doing what's right in your eyes and not doing what is right in God's eyes. And so they again do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord, the text tells us, strengthens Moab's king, a man named Eglon. And in fact, Moab forms a coalition with two other uh, peoples, two other foreign nations, the Amalekites and the Ammonites, and they oppress and they subdue the people of Israel. Now these these nations that come together and form this coalition are backed by uh, Satan himself. These are satanic forces that are coming against the people of Israel. All the way back in Genesis chapter three, the Bible tells us that when mankind sinned, when they listened to the word of the serpent, God said, I'm going, there's going to be enmity between the offspring of the serpent and between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of Eve eventually is going to crush the head of the serpent. And we see that play out over and over and over again in the scriptures, and we see that play out here. The Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites are backed by Satan. These are satanic forces that are trying to oppress and to uh, bring violence and to destroy the people of Israel, and God is going to raise up a deliverer to crush the head of those enemies that are opposing the people of Israel. And so we see that happening here with, with Eglon, who comes against them with these two other wicked nations. Then the humiliation gets worse. It's not only that they are, the people of Israel are defeated, but the text tells us there in verse 13 that they took possession of the city of Palms. Okay, that's Jericho. Jericho was the first city that the Israelites conquered and took possession of when they came into the land with Joshua in the conquest. And now the conquest is being reversed. The first city that they took possession of has now been taken away from them and the Moabites have possession of Jericho. And so the text tells us that the people of Israel are oppressed for 18 
long years. And then the story takes a turn. After the text tells us that they were oppressed for 18 years, verse 15 tells us, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a savior, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. We have to hear this story again as we walk through what's happening in the text. We need to hear this story the way that the Israelites would have heard this story when they had been suppressed and oppressed and suffered for 18 long years under this, this tyrant named Eglon. And so they cry out to the Lord, and the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So they call out to the Lord, and the Lord raises up for them an unlikely savior named Ehud. Now, he's unlikely for a couple of reasons. One, he comes from the tribe of Benjamin. We'll see later as we walk through the book of Judges that, that Benjamin was a godless tribe that at the end of the book of Judges is basically just like Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? And so we'll see that from the tribe of Benjamin is a godless tribe. In fact, uh, Benjamin comes from when, when uh, Jacob ha had a son and his wife Rachel died uh, when she was giving birth to his son Benjamin. And he called him, uh, he tried to call him at first Ben-Anoi, which means son of my sorrows. And then was, he re was renamed Benjamin, which means son of my right hand, okay? And so this is, an, this is the last child that was born to Jacob. And this is an unlikely tribe and an unlikely child. And so he goes from son of sorrows to son of my right hand. And so he's unlikely because he comes from the least of the tribes and from the godless tribe in Benjamin. He's also unlikely because the text tells us in the Hebrew that he cannot use his right hand. He's a left-handed guy, but the text basically says and, and, and explicitly says that he cannot use his right hand. Now, some scholars think he was potentially handicapped, okay, that, that he like literally, his, he could not use his right hand. Others say, no, no, he was just a left-handed guy. Uh, and there's a lot of people in the, in the tribe of Benjamin who were left-handed uh, people and left-handed warriors. And so we can't say for sure, but because of his left hand, he is, he is unlikely. Okay, being left-handed, in the same way that it is today, most people are right-handed and, 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 and most people are not left-handed. But in that day and age, in the ancient Near East, it was a stigma. Uh, there was a stigma on you if you were only able to use your left hand. Like in, in ancient Near Eastern cultures, even in, in Eastern cultures today, um, your left hand is what you use. And again, this is, uh, I'm not trying to be, you know, indelicate or whatever, but it, like this comes straight, you know, from the Bible. This, this bathroom humor comes from the Bible. So um, your left hand is what, in, in many Eastern cultures, is what you use to wipe, okay? And your right hand is what you use to fight and to be a warrior. And so he's, he's unlikely to be a warrior because he can't use his right hand because he only uses his left hand. And so the story tells us that he's the one who takes the taxes to Eglon, uh, and what we, we need to understand is because of his left-handedness, he's not seen as a security risk. Again, warriors use their right hand. He uses his left hand. And so he's not seen as a security risk uh, because of, we'll talk about more in a second, because of the way that he hides the weapon that he has. Now, Eglon is kind of a job of the hut figure, all right? He's this, 
this fat, decadent oppressor of the people around him. And he's, he's taxing the Israelites and he's getting fatter on the tax that they bring him. They bring him this, these grain taxes and these grain offerings and he eats them and he's getting fatter and fatter and fatter. It's like the, the bully in the kindergarten class who steals everybody's Twinkies and eats the Twinkies and gets bigger and fatter because of it, okay? That's, what, that's who Eglon is, all right? And so he's oppressing the people of Israel and he's getting fat off of the tax that they are bringing him. And Ehud comes and he's not only an unlikely savior, but he wields an unlikely weapon. The text tells us, the story tells us as it unfolds, like a, like a drama you would watch in a movie as the, the scene kind of slows down and shows you this meticulous planning that's going on so that, that he, can, he can bring about this defeat of the Moabites. It tells us that he plans a sneak attack with a conceal and carry weapon, okay? And that conceal and carry weapon that he has is a two-edged sword, and the, the text tells us that it is about a cubit, which is about from your elbow to the tips of your finger. So the sword, it's a smaller blade from about the elbow to the tips of your finger. It's a two-edged sword, and he, he binds it, he, he affixes it to his right thigh, okay? Now that's, that's important because, again, typically if you're a warrior, you're right-handed, and your sword would be affixed to your left hip so that you can grab and be ready for battle. But he has his affixed to his right thigh. And again, there's this, this tension in the story. Are they gonna, when they search him and they pat him down, are they gonna find it? Is he gonna be found out? Or is he gonna be able to get through with his deception? So he binds it to his right thigh and then he gives the gift, he gives the, the tribute, the taxes, the grain to Eglon. Now Eglon, just so you know, Eglon, the Hebrew word Eglon, literally means calf. And what the text is telling us in this, again, this irony that's playing out is that this fatted calf is being led to the slaughter. That's what's about to happen with Ehud. And so he gives him the gift and he, by giving him the gift, he puts him at ease and then he leaves. And after he leaves, he turns back and he comes back. He, he, he takes the, 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 the company that came with him, he sends them back and then he comes back by himself alone and he goes to the king and he says, I have a secret that I wanna tell you. Now again, all of us, most of us, I would say, love secrets. And we love to be in on secrets. I think about what Michael Scott said in the office. I, you know, I love inside jokes. Hope to be a part of one someday, you know? <laughs> we all love secrets. And so he tells Eglon, I've got a secret to tell you. And so Eglon says, hush. And he sends all of his servants, all of his attendants, his guards out of the room. Now again, if you're an Israelite, and you're hearing this story, you're, you're snickering at this point. You're laughing. Like, he sent everybody out of the room? Yep, he sent everybody out of the room because Ehud had a secret to tell him. So the king dismisses everybody. He's alone. The text tells us in his cool roof chamber. This is a place where you would, you would sit at night. Again, there's no air conditioning in those days. You'd sit out there at night, take in the breeze, and you would cool off. And so that's where he was 
and Ehud comes to him uh, to give him this secret. And Ehud says, again, literally in the Hebrew, he says, I have a word from God for you. Okay, you have a word from God for you. Again, that's something that we would all love. We love secrets. And if somebody tells us they've got a special, special message from God for us, we're like, okay, what is it? What does God want to tell me? And so Eglon gets up from his chair. He goes towards Ehud to receive this word from God. And then Ehud moves with his left hand, which again would not have been something that would have tipped him off. Uh, and he grabs the blade from his right thigh that he calls the word of God. And he thrusts it into his belly and the text tells us that Eglon is so fat that everything, again, this blade, everything from the hilt to the tip of the blade buries into his belly. And then, and I've had a lot of um, kind of a crisis of conscience this week about how best to describe what hap happens next, okay? because I don't want you to be too mad at me and I don't want you to fire me or send me, you know, complaining emails. And so I don't really know how to explain, like if you have the NIV or others, like they try to explain it away, but like literally, um, I guess the best way to say it is he loses control of his bodily functions, all right? And he messes himself and then he dies. Okay, and again, it's hilarious. If you're an Israelite and you're hearing this story, it is so funny that this enemy that has oppressed them and has persecuted them for almost 20 years dies, and he dies in this fashion, okay? It is hilarious what's happening here. And then the question is, okay, Ehud has assassinated their leader, their political head, will he get away? Will he get away with what he has done? And so he, he jumps onto the porch and he escapes and he locks the door behind him. And then what happens next is the servants see that the door is locked. They smell the smell of what's happening and they think he's going to the bathroom and so they don't open the door and they allow the assassin to escape because they think he's going to the bathroom. Again, all the Israelites are like cracking up at this point. Like this is hilarious. Like he gets away. Yeah, he gets away. Why does he get away? Because they think he was going to the bathroom. Like this is, this is hilarious uh, what is happening. And so they, it says they wait till they're embarrassed. Okay, and they're like, they're asking themselves like, what did he have for dinner? Like why? you know, why is he, why has he been in there so long? And then finally they open the door and they find him dead and they should be embarrassed because they let they, their delay allowed the assassin not only to escape, but to escape and begin to assemble his army that's going to come and uh, defeat him. And so this isn't just losing. This is losing in a humiliating fashion. I remember several years ago, uh, watching a game on Thanksgiving, a football game on Thanksgiving, when the Patriots were playing, playing one of their rivals, the Jets, and they destroyed the Jets, but that wasn't enough. The quarterback for the Jets 
tried to take off and run, ran into the backside of one of his linemen, fumbled, and the Patriots picked it up and ran it in for a touchdown. It was what people call the butt fumble, okay? And that's what's happening here. It's not just that they are defeated, but they're defeated in the most humiliating and humorous way possible. Now, that raises a question. What are we to make of this? Okay? Like this, this story that's presented here in the Bible, what are, what are we supposed to do with this? Okay? Are we supposed to go and do likewise? No, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I don't think there's any like moral tip for us in this story. That's not, again, that's not what this is about. This is a story about how God uses unlikely weapons and raises up unlikely saviors for his people. And it points us to the unlikely method and the unlikely savior, Jesus Christ. That's what this story is all about. God uses, and we're gonna see this throughout the book of Judges, and it points us to Jesus, that God uses unlikely tools and unlikely people to rescue his people from their enemies. We read uh, just a second ago at the end of chapter three about Shamgar. Shamgar was a farmer who used a farming implement, an ox goad, to defeat the Philistines and to rescue the people of Israel from the Philistines. We're going to see throughout the book of Judges, again, these unlikely people and these unlikely weapons that are used. In a couple of weeks, we're going to see that God uses a woman with a hammer and a tent peg to rescue his people. We'll see in a couple of weeks that God uses a woman with a millstone that she tosses on the head of the enemy of Israel and crushes his head and rescues the people of Israel by that. We're gonna see again in a several weeks, Samson, who's kind of a Rambo, Hugh Hefner type person, who's just this really unlikely guy who uses a donkey's jawbone to kill a thousand Philistines. And so again, over and over and over again, in this book, God uses unlikely people and unlikely weapons to rescue his people. We'll see with Gideon, who's a coward. And God uses a coward with a very small army to rescue his people from the Midianites. And here's the, here's the point, okay? Here's the thing that we need to see. Again, we're not, we're not meant to look at the book of Judges and say, okay, who are the good guys? Let's be like them. Who are the bad guys? Let's not be like them. The whole point of the book, the book of Judges, one scholar said, the big E on the eye chart is God rescues his people. That's what Judges is about. It's about the mercy and the compassion of God to rescue his people. And this is good news. Listen, no matter what you're suffering, no matter how long you've been suffering it, no matter how bad you've messed up, if you call out to God in your distress, he will hear you. He will be moved with compassion for you. We see that over and over and over again in the book of Judges. It points us to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, all the way back in Genesis 3, the Bible tells us that there's going to come a Messiah and he's going to crush the head of the serpent. And then listen to this. In Numbers 24, the exact same thing is said about the people of Moab. Listen to this, Numbers 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. 
I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob. A scepter will arise from Israel. He will smash the forehead of Moab and strike down all the Shethites. This is a prophecy about the Messiah. This is what we see here. This story where Ehud smashes and crushes the political head of Moab, Eglon, is a foretaste of what Jesus will do when he comes. Jesus is the king warrior, the king savior, foretold in Numbers 24, who crushes the head of his enemies. And he does it in the most unlikely way. He's taken captive by a foreign power. He is whipped. He is mocked. He has his beard pulled out. He has a crown of thorns put on his head. He takes the judgment for our sin. He looks weak, but in his weakness, he brings salvation to the world. And there's no one who thinks that an executed criminal is the savior of the world. Just like there's no one who thinks a left-handed man is going to save the people of Israel, but God delights to use the unlikely and to use the odd to confound the wisdom and the powers of this age. And so Jesus is the true son of sorrows. He's the true son of the right hand who sits at the right hand of God. And he gives us rest, not for 80 years, but for eternity. So Jesus is the greater Ehud who saves his people and judges his enemies, and he does it, the Bible tells us, over and over and over again, Hebrews chapter four, Revelation chapter 19, with a two-edged sword. Listen to what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15, about Jesus. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So Jesus wields a sword that Hebrews 4 tells us pierces through joint and marrow and, and, and reveals the secrets of our heart. And so Jesus, as we see with Ehud, he's the savior of those who will be found in him and he is the judge of those who oppose him. And he does it with a two-edged sword that comes out of his mouth, the word of God. Now, once we see how this story points to Christ, we can see our part in the story. We can see how it applies to us. So the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter one that Jesus looks to this age like a fool so that he can confound the wisdom of this age. And Jesus to this age looks like a weakling so that he can confound the power of this age. And then the, the Bible tells us, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, that that's the kind of people that he calls and that's the kind of people that he uses. He doesn't use what the world sees as rich or powerful or meaningful or significant. He calls the weak, he calls the powerless, he calls those that nobody else wants and he calls them to himself and he uses them for his glory. And that's the whole point of it is that he's the one who gets the glory. God uses unlikely people like 
Ehud. We see in the story, Ehud, after he's defeated Eglon, he goes out like Jesus, he sounds the trumpet, he blows the shofar, and he calls the army to himself to battle, and they go out and they destroy the Moabites, and they defeat them, and they bring rest and peace to Israel. And the text tells us that this is not about the might of the Israelites, it's about a miracle from God. Because the Bible tells us there in verse 28 that the Lord is the one who gave the enemies, the Moabites, into their hands. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. When Israel wins a war, it's not about their strategy or their smartness or their uh, technology, their weapons. It's about God giving them the victory. And so God, by miracle, not by might, gives them the victory. And here's what we see in this text. The people of Israel had been oppressed under the Moabites and under Eglon for 18 years. They weren't fighting back. They had no power to fight back. But once Eglon defeated the king, now all of a sudden they are empowered to fight. And they go out and they win the victory. Not for victory, but because they had already been brought victory by their savior Ehud. And this is, this is instructive for us. One of the problems that we have, again, about the Old Testament is we always want to see ourselves in the heroes of the story. And so we read the story about David and Goliath, and we think, okay, I'm, I'm like David, and I've got to go out and beat my Goliaths. But that's not the way that the Bible's supposed to be read. Like, you're not David. I'm not David. You're not Ehud. I'm not Ehud. We're the people of Israel cowering in the background underneath the foot of our enemies, and we need somebody empowered by the Spirit of God to go out and to fight when we can't fight and to rescue us because we cannot rescue ourselves. But then once they do, once they save us, once they defeat our enemy, then we are empowered by the Spirit to go out and do the mop up. Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. He's crushed the head of Satan. And so now out of that victory, not for victory, but from victory, we fight against our spiritual enemies in the power of Christ. And that's what we see happening here in Judges. Eglon is defeated by Ehud, and then the people of Israel go out and fight against the Moabites. Satan has been defeated by Jesus, and now we go out to war, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. And so God delights to use unlikely people in his war against the evil one. We are wise and we are strong only when we first recognize that we are fools and we are weak and we need God to use us. And once we recognize that, God is ready to use us to do great things for him. Here's what we see in Judges chapter three. Again, no matter how unlikely you think you are to be used by God, God can and will use you. You say, I'm too young for God to use me. Listen, 
God does incredible things through young people. Joan of Arc was 17 years old when she led out armies. Pascal was 19 years old when he invented a form of a calculator, which led to calculators that we use today. James Madison was 29 years old when he led the Continental Congress. So no matter how young you are, God can use you to do incredible, significant things for his glory. You say, I'm, I'm too old. Okay, you're never too old for God to use you. Tolkien was 62 years old when he wrote the first volume of The Lord of the Rings. 62. Webster was 66 when he finished his first uh, version of the dictionary. John Glenn went into space at the age of 77. And so you're, you're never too old. You're never too young for God to use you. God delights to use farmers and fishermen and former terrorists and prostitutes and carpenters and teachers and moms and dads to do incredible things for his glory. And not only does he use unlikely people, but he uses an unlikely weapon. Our weapon is the same weapon that Ehud used and the same weapon that Jesus uses. It's a two-edged sword. Rabbinic literature tells us that in the Old Testament that uh, Jewish people think that the Torah, the five books of Moses, it was referred to as a two-edged sword. And we see in the New Testament that the Word of God is referred to as a two-edged sword. We see this in Ephesians chapter 6. In fact, the only offensive weapon that we have, Ephesians chapter 6, which is talking about spiritual warfare, the only offensive weapon, like we have a bunch of defense, okay? We've got a helmet, we've got a shield, we've got armor, but the only offensive weapon that we have is the Word of God. And the Bible tells us that it is a two-edged sword. And so we don't, as I talked about last week a little bit, we don't wage holy war with fleshly weapons, we wage holy war with the word of God. It's the word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ that opens blind eyes that have been blinded by the God of this age, 2 Corinthians tells us. It's the word of God that I've seen in my life do incredible things. The word of God that has saved marriages. The word of God that has, has helped people overcome addiction. It's the word of God that brings people from death into life. It says the only weapon that we have is the word of God. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in the book of Jonah. Simply the proclamation of the word of God subdued Israel's number one enemy under their feet. And so it's the word of God that we are to take and that we are to wield and that we are to proclaim in order to see our enemies defeated, and people rescued from death. And so the question that you are faced with and I'm faced with is, are you taking the word of God? Are you sharing it with those around you? Are you proclaiming it to those around you? Are you using it to help people, to help marriages, to help families, to help lost people, to help addicts, to help friends? Like this is the only thing that we have. The only thing that we have is the word of God. And so we need to use it and we need to share it. And then the last thing that we see here is that this, this story is a comedy. 
the story is a comedy. One of the incredible things that we see in the story of Ehud is 18 long years, they are under this tyrant who is oppressing them. And on the other side of that oppression, on the other side of that suffering, comes joy and comes laughter. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. No matter what you're going through, no matter how bad you are hurting, no matter what you've suffered, in Jesus Christ, those tears will eventually be turned to laughter. The Bible says he will wipe every single tear away from our eyes. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the greatest romantic comedy that's ever been told in human existence. You say, I don't think you should say it like that. Well, here's, here's what I mean. Classically, when you, when you talk about comedy and tragedy, a tragedy is a story that has a negative ending and a comedy is a story that has a positive ending. And the gospel is the greatest comedy. It's not just that God does this in like humorous and unlikely ways. Like the Bible tells us that Satan moved Judas to betray Jesus and hand him over to the authorities so that he would be crucified. And so Satan, as he's carrying out his plan, thinks, I'm going to do away with Jesus. I'm going to stop the Messiah. I'm going to stop this salvation of the world. And in the very plan that Satan carries out, brings about the crushing of his own head. As Jesus is whipped and smacked and mocked and nailed to a cross, he's bringing the forces of God down on the head of his enemies. And so this is the, the greatest, and it's not just a comedy, it's a romantic comedy. He does that, why? To save you and to save me. And so the gospel is the greatest comedy that has ever been told in the history of human existence. And if you want your sorrow to be turned to laughter, then run to Jesus Christ who can wipe away every tear from your eyes. Let me ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna go into a time of response to this message. If you're here and you have never given your life to Jesus, then I wanna challenge you, tonight's the night for you to give your life to Jesus. And again, just like the people of Israel, the Bible says, all who cry out to the Lord, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so tonight, right where you are, you can cry out to God in prayer and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I know that I'm separated from you because of what I've done. But I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, that you raised him from the dead, and I want him to be the savior of my life. I want to be the king of my life. And so Lord Jesus, come into my heart and come into my life right now 
and rescue me. And if you pray that, you call out to the Lord that way and you mean it with your heart, then God will save you. And so if that's you, if you need to give your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you, cry out to God in prayer. Call out to Jesus to save you. We've got pastors who will be here at the front when I get done praying here just a second who would love to talk to you about that decision and encourage you in that decision. Maybe you're here tonight and you need to be baptized. You've given your life to Jesus, but you've never followed in obedience and baptism. We'd love to talk to you about baptism. Maybe you want to join with our church and become a member here and, and, and get on mission with us as we take the word of God to Southwest Florida and beyond. We'd love to have you be part of our church. Maybe you need to cry out to the Lord and commit, Lord, I know that you use unlikely people. I know that you delight to do unlikely things. And Lord, I've, I've been sitting in the background and I've not been doing anything for you because I didn't think you could use me because I didn't think I was somebody who was valuable or was worth it in your, in your kingdom. But now you understand and now you recognize, you know what, God, God uses unlikely people and God wants to use you. And so you need to get involved. You need to get involved serving in our children's ministry. You need to get involved with St. Matthew's house. You need to go on one of our mission trips. You need to uh, get involved as a greeter or in our worship team or any of these different areas that we have in our church. So you need to commit, Lord, I want you to use me. I want to get involved in what you're doing as your kingdom marches to the ends of the earth. So whatever it is that you need to commit to tonight, I pray that you'll, you'll do it and that you'll be sensitive to what the Lord is leading you to do. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would work in hearts and lives right now. Father, we thank you for this, this good news that you use unlikely people and unlikely weapons to defeat your enemies. And so God, we ask that you would use us. Lord, we don't think that we are wise. We don't think that we are strong. We don't think that we are worthy. We think Jesus is wise. We think he is strong. We think he is worthy. And we would just ask, Lord, that Jesus would work through us. So, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would transform us, that you would call us, that you would empower us to do what you want us to do. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? We're going to sing. If you have a decision to make, you come right now while we sing.